If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. Hey Warblers, welcome to a new episode. Before we begin, we want to thank you for listening to the podcast. The reception was overwhelming and fills us with joy. Now, we want to invite you to send us a recording. This is the opportunity to have your bird-related burning questions answered. Literally, any question. Send us a recording, we will play some of them during our episode and find the right person to answer them. Like, does a mallard fly higher than an eagle? Or do hummingbirds really travel on gold's backs? Or maybe you want to know what you can do to help birds. Or what Birds Canada is doing to save birds. Record a voice message about any bird-related questions you might have. Send it to us using the contact info on this episode's description. You're listening to The Warblers, a Birds Canada podcast. I'm Andrea Grass. And I am Andres Jimenez. Join us as we travel on common flight paths with our guests gaining insight and inspiration from the world of birds and bird conservation in Canada. Today we chat with Sarah Gutowski about seabirds, which apparently is not that straightforward. Sarah has a PhD in all things seabirds. She tells us what a seabird is and shares some favorite stories about seabirds and field research experiences. And she helps us figure out what we can do to support seabird conservation. And let's not forget albatrosses. We talk a lot about albatrosses. That was the amazing courtship displays of albatross, lies and albatross to be precise. And I'm wondering, how do you feel about seabirds, Sandra? To be honest, I don't know much about them. I grew up in the prairies, no ocean there. I work with shorebirds, but they're a little different from seabirds. So, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm excited to dive into this topic because it's going to be a new one for me. Do you even know what a seabird is? You know, if you asked me to put a hard definition on it, I'd be, I'd hesitate. <laughs> yeah, there must be one because when we use the term seabird for birds, that means they have a set of ecological characteristics that kind of sets them apart as a group like you know, shorebirds that use the shores, right? Mm -hmm. I have to admit that I feel completely disconnected from seabirds. As I was preparing for this episode, this connection is what I was experiencing. I feel I don't relate to them, even though in Costa Rica, you spend a lot of time on the beach. The only birds I relate to from the sea, from the ocean, are the ones that I've experienced. And to be super precise, pelicans, like brown pelicans. Mm -hmm. Frigate birds who I had to chase so they wouldn't eat the sea turtle hatchlings that I was guarding. <laughs> so you've got a bit of a birds. negative negative yes. association then. <laughs> exactly. They just come down and grab the little hatchlings, throw them up, and then swap them whole. Oh, dear. Yeah, so that's my experience with seabirds. And given that, I'm super excited for today. And before we go into our guest for today, Sarah Gatowski, I would like to bring some key facts that are going to be part of today's conversation. 95% of Canadian seabirds are in trouble that we have 58 bird species using Canadian oceans and that five of them are decreasing and 20 are at risk of extinction. Yeah, that's a lot to take in. That's kind of scary. Yes, but I think the scariest part is that 62% of the Canadian seabirds have 
unknown population trends. And that's actually pretty mind-blowing too, because at Birds Canada, we do so much work with different populations, different birds populations, and not just at Birds Canada, there's countless organizations working on birds and how are birds doing and how many are there and where are they? And so to think that it's 62% of seabirds in Canada, unknown populations, that's pretty crazy. For those that are new to unknown population trends is basically we've seen them. We know they use the Canadian waters, but we don't have enough information to understand if we have more of this bird or less of these birds. And so fortunately for us, Andrea, today we talk with Dr. Sarah Gutowski, who is a climber, an Arctic guide, a researcher, and overall superwoman. And she is a specialist in studying the movements of seabirds in their marine environment. She has worked with albatrosses, murelets, gulls, and many other groups tackling challenging conservation issues. I can't wait to dive in with a, an absolute expert. All right, let's talk to her. Hey, Sarah came in. Hi. Hi. <laughs> She's just been listening to us ramble aimlessly about birds. Uh, only for a moment. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome. Uh, it's nice to meet you vocally. Yeah. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about yourself and where you live? Sure, yeah. I'm currently a postdoc research fellow uh, in Halifax in Nova Scotia. I'm working in partnership right now with Acadia University and Ducks Unlimited Canada. And we're working on a big project looking at changes over time in, in numbers and habitat for seabirds and waterfowl on the East Coast. And I also teach a few courses in the biology department at Dalhousie University. And maybe unsurprisingly, my favorite is my ornithology field course that mm. I've been teaching for eight years now. Awesome. Very cool. And you're also uh, a bit of a world traveler, I hear. I guess you could say that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> studying birds has given me the opportunity to travel to a lot of really crazy, amazing places. So off the top of your head, top three places you've done bird work or research in. Ooh, that's tough. But okay, number one would have to be Midway Atoll which is one of the remote islands in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's the largest albatross colony in the world. So just an absolutely spectacular place. Uh, number two, this is really hard. Number two would probably be Kerguelen, which is uh, a French subantarctic island in the middle of the Southern Ocean, sort of halfway between Antarctica and Madagascar right out there <laughs> and uh, penguins and albatrosses and every seabird imaginable and just an absolutely remote and dramatic set of islands. That was really spectacular. Did you say three? Okay. I want three. Yeah. Okay. Like you've already drawn me in with the first two. Give me a yeah, third. Let's, let's have a third. That this is super hard for you because of the <laughs> huge amount of amazing places you've seen. <laughs> I know. They're all islands, though, I feel like. All of my tops are definitely islands, definitely seem to be seabird colonies. I think the other really, one of the places that holds a really big spot in my heart is South Georgia, which is another subantarctic island. And again, hugely important breeding site for a number of species of albatrosses and penguins. And, uh, you know, it's a glaciated, mountainous, incredibly dramatic island and a really, really special place. So, yeah, you're using the term dramatic. I like mm. that. Yeah, like what really draws you? Like, oh, so these are all islands that, that are your top ones. They're all big, big seabird areas. Like what brought you to those areas? 
seabirds. <laughs> just seabirds. You're you're in seeking a, seabirds. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially for either research or for guiding, you know, expedition guiding on small cruise ships where we take intrepid travelers to uh, really crazy places in the polar regions. And so I've sort of been able to access some of these places through those two avenues, either through research or through guiding. That's incredible. How does one get into intrepid travelers to crazy <laughs> Arctic regions. How did I get into that industry? Yes. Oh, a little bit of serendipity, I think. So when I was in grad school, I was thinking I you know, wasn't necessarily going to be successful in the competitions for funding for more, you know, research funds. And so I started to think, what other fields could I expand into? And somebody once said, oh, you should try adventure tourism. You would be a great fit for that. And I had no idea what that was. And I literally Googled Adventure Tourism Canada. And this company came up that did these trips in the Arctic on a ship. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I was just looking at the website and one of those live chat boxes popped up and said, hi, how can I help you? And I said, what types of qualifications do your guides have? I'm really curious. And the person, you know, listed the things which included some sort of specialty that you could speak to as an expert on the ship and boating experience and firearms experience in polar bear country. And at the time I had worked a number of field jobs that I had all of that experience. And so I said, well, I have all that. What else could I do? And they said, send us your resume. And I did. And then they invited me to come on a few trips that summer. And that was the start of it all. They, uh, yeah, that launched me into spending a couple months a year on ships in crazy places. That sounds so phenomenal, honestly. I was, like, I was so lucky. It was so yeah. lucky. I feel, I feel so fortunate. Yeah. To just have a, a friend or, you know, just, just be like, Hey, you should check this out. Yeah. It, it set me on a path. For yeah. Sure. Wow. Yes. Where do you think you'd be if you hadn't gone that route? I don't know. I mean, that's one piece of what I do. And it's a really important piece for me. I can't imagine my life, honestly, without that aspect. But I think I probably would have channeled that energy into something else. You know, I do land-based um, guiding as well. And, you know, something like that with that sort of public outreach component and a little bit of adventure, I'm sure something would have fallen into place. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of experience with guiding and then, of course, with research, uh, doing some pretty heavy field work and studies. Do you have any advice for other people or particularly women, perhaps, looking to get into, the, into STEM? I think my advice for anybody at an early stage in STEM um, would be to sort of always advocate for yourself. I think, of course, you need to work hard to build a diverse skill set that makes you valuable, but then you need to recognize your value and you need to ask for what you need and deserve. I think a lot of women in particular, but anybody in an early career stage has a, has a hard time doing that. And I think it's, it's also really important to constantly challenge yourself, you know, push yourself outside your comfort zone, because that's where you have the most to gain. Like, you know, taking a job that's exciting, but scary, like maybe expedition guiding when you don't even know what that is or, you know, presenting your work at a big conference or, or doing a podcast interview. You know, you, I think you need to tap into your inner extrovert and just put yourself out there. I think that's my big advice for folks is just to, you know, just put yourself out there. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So there's a term that I've seen floating around, the leaky pipeline phenomenon. Right. Wondering yeah. if you could explain what that is and how it's uh, occurring in academia. Sure. Yeah. Well, the concept is that women 
women tend to leave STEM career paths, you know, whether that's academia or government or otherwise, due to gender discrimination, basically, that's faced at every stage from education through to the highest levels of a given profession. And it's kind of, it's a constant loss of women along the way that leads to an increasingly male biased workplaces, particularly at the highest levels. So it's a common problem in the field of biology. You know, in my experience, I've certainly to date seen the female biased ratio. So all of my experiences today have been, you know, working on field teams and in labs where we're almost entirely women. And that's been really empowering for me personally, you know, to be surrounded by confident, successful women as peers and mentors. But I know that the gender ratio tends to flip as you progress further in your career and women are lost through that leaky pipeline. So how do we turn off the pipeline? I think the first step is recognizing and acknowledging the issue, which, you know, I'm happy to say I'm seeing more and more of every day. At the personal level, I think we always need to challenge gender stereotypes. And at an organizational level, we need strategies to recruit and retain and advance women in STEM occupations. But I I do feel that the tide's turning on that right now and we're headed down the right path. I think it is too. Uh, Even just like in any given year, there's lots of different hashtags trending for uh, women in science and and stuff like that on Twitter or Instagram. And it's always just inundation of really cool women doing awesome work, whether it's in, you know, the laboratories or out in the field or wherever. And that's, that's always really great to see. I really enjoy that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. There's an awful lot of inspiring people on, uh, on social media that I think, again, you know, is a good place for people who are earlier in early in their careers in STEM to look for inspiration and for mentors and uh, and guidance. Cool. So maybe changing the subject a little bit more, getting into the seabird stuff. We'll be right back. The Warblers is supported by Feather Friendly. Birds can't see glass, and millions die each year because of window collisions. You can save dozens of birds by treating your windows with Feather Friendly's do-it-yourself kit or their commercial solution for large projects. The markers are easy to apply and they work. You can also double your impact by using the code BIRDSCANADA and Feather Friendly will make a donation to support bird conservation. Keep birds singing, treat your windows with Feather Friendly. Visit featherfriendly.com. What motivated you to focus specifically on seabirds? Well, I sort of fell into seabirds, to be honest. During my undergraduate degree, in my second year, I was super lucky to get an opportunity to work on a field project on little endangered species of seabird called the marbled murrelet on the West Coast. And that sort of launched me into wanting to study seabirds uh, sort of Mm -hmm. as a career. But um, my motivation to sort of stick with them has uh, been sort of threefold. I'd say the first reason is pretty super superficial and that, you know, I think seabirds are gorgeous. <laughs> Each family is really unique and they're all really beautiful, but the albatrosses are what I, you know, my real obsession is with. They're they're like the Siamese cats of the seabirds. They're effortlessly classy and kind of mesmerizing. And as a photographer, they're a total dream come true. And then my second motivation is that seabirds, you know, they've really been my ticket to adventure, which we've talked about. And they breed in these really remote and dramatic places. And um, it's it's an incredible privilege to spend, you know, months on end immersed in their, their collective herd heartbeat of their lives in these incredible landscapes. So that's really thrilling. That's another motivation. And then my third motivation, I think, to focus on seabirds has been, you know, they're one of the world's most threatened groups of birds. And 
almost half of all species are in decline and one in three species is threatened with extinction and albatrosses are in the worst state of all. All 22 species are threatened. So my personal connection to them makes me feel even more sort of motivated to do my small part in better understanding the causes of their declines. There are 22 species of albatrosses. Give or take. It depends on the taxonomy of the day, but yeah, 22 about. Two or three. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are three in the North Pacific that come oh into God. Canadian waters. The rest are in the Southern Ocean. Sarah, before continuing down the pipeline of the albatrosses, pun intended, yes. for those that might never have seen the ocean. Could you define what is it that we call a seabird? Oh, well, that's a tricky question because it depends the definition that you choose. But typically we think of seabirds. The classic seabird is what you might call a pelagic seabird, which is a seabird that uses areas offshore in the marine environment. Um, so not coastal birds, but truly offshore open ocean birds. Um, and so typically using the open ocean marine environment for at least some part of their annual cycle. Okay, let, let's put this in practical terms. Mm-hmm. Pelican, seabird or not? Definitely a seabird. Okay, puffin. Definitely a seabird. Herring gull. Also, I'd say, I'd still say a seabird, okay. um, but that's a gray area. Mm, okay, wimbrel. No, shorebird. Ah, there you go. Penguin. Seabird. Okay, now I understand the better. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it about albatrosses that drives you insane about them as to visit the majority of the albatrosses colonies in the world? I think it's their lifestyle. They spend the majority of their lives at sea, far from land, making a living on in that open ocean environment. You know, it seems to be a truly inhospitable environment, at least from the human perspective. And they're the largest of seabirds, you know, with incredibly long, narrow wings that are highly specialized for soaring endlessly over the open ocean in search of food. And parents will cover thousands of kilometers in a single trip from the nest to bring back one meal for their waiting chick. So they're magnificent animals. Totally captivating. How big are they? How big are they? Well, it depends. Um, the largest species have wingspans of, you know, almost 11 feet. The wandering albatross. Wow. That's like a room. Whoa. It's very big. Okay. Do they sleep while they fly? Well, we don't know for sure, but they uni-hemispheric sleep. So they can sort of sleep one half of their brain at a time. And we know that they do that, you know, when they're sitting or resting on the water or on the nest. And we suspect that albatross do it as well. But it, I mean, it has been shown in frigate birds using some crazy biologging tech, uh, looking at their brain waves while they're flying, that they do actually take these like micro cat naps with one side of their brain at a time so that they can just keep going. Okay, for how long can they be into the ocean? For how many days without touching land? Oh my gosh. Well, for albatross, yes. years. We're talking, what? yes, because albatross don't reach sexual maturity, some species, until they're eight years old. And so after their first, you know, year on the colony, growing, becoming sub-adult, they fledge from the colony, they leave the colony, and they don't come back to their natal colony until they're sexually mature. So they spend, you know, it depends on the species, but for every species, at least three, four years before they come back to land. And then some of them, yeah, up to eight years. Wow. Yeah. Now I can start to get why you would love to see as many albatross as you could. Yeah. So what do these birds do when you are at 
their colony if they have spent four years into the ocean. Oh well, they're social. They're social when they're on land because they're pretty solitary when they're at sea. I mean, they might they might hang out and float on the water for a little bit, or you know, come to a feeding aggregation or something at some point, but not a lot of socializing at sea. And so when they come back to these dense aggregations of birds in the colonies, it's all about finding a mate and pairing up. And so they have the most spectacular courtship rituals and dances uh, that they do to find a mate. And uh, that's a sight to behold, you know, lots of gesturing and sort of synchronized dancing and calling. And uh, it's amazing. That's incredible. I remember as a kid, I had this massive fact book about <laughs> wildlife, wildlife from everywhere. And the wandering albatross, the amount of time they spend just gliding over the sea, that was the fact that stuck with me for life. It's like, what on earth are these creatures? That's so cool. And you said we've got three species that spend time in Canada, right? Yeah. Which ones are those? So we've got mostly what we'd get in Canadian waters off the West Coast would be black-footed albatross, as well as short-tailed albatross. And uh, to a lesser extent, extent, the Laysan albatross. What kinds of conservation challenges are these birds facing? Oh, they face sort of a, a suite of threats uh, for albatrosses and for seabirds in general. There are four really big ones. The first one is invasive species on their breeding islands, especially mammals like cats, rats, and mice. So, you know, seabirds have evolved to nest in places that are totally free of land predators. So they have no innate defense response and introduced mammals will take advantage of that. So they can kill eggs and chicks and even adults and they're decimating seabird colonies all over the world. Um, nearly half of all seabird species actually are impacted by invasive species. But there have been some incredible success stories of eradications at a number of major sites. And without those efforts, those colonies wouldn't have survived, which in some cases would mean entire species going extinct. So invasive species is a really big problem. The second major threat is fisheries bycatch, which is where birds are accidentally killed by fishing gears. So birds get tangled in nets or they get caught on hooks when they try and eat the bait, which smells and looks the same as their natural food. And then they drown. So that's an enormous issue. That kills over half a million birds annually. There are ways to reduce bycatch, you know, called mitigation measures, like putting up streamers that scare birds away or waiting lines so they sink faster to depths that are out of reach of the birds. Then there's an amazing new technology too called hook pods that are essentially covers over baited hooks that are triggered by pressure to open when they sink deep enough. Mm. And those are making a huge difference in some fisheries that have historically had really high bycatch. So those are sort of the two major threats. There's maybe two more. There's climate change, of course, a mm -hmm. problem for wildlife worldwide. But for seabirds, it has sort of a one-two punch kind of an impact where climate change is causing rapid shifts in ocean conditions that affect seabird prey. So there's less food available, essentially. And at the same time, there's increasing frequency and intensity of storms combined with rising sea levels, and that destroys their island habitats that they depend on to nest. So climate change is having really wide-scale impacts on seabirds. Mm -hmm. And then the last one, I guess the fourth, there's more, but the four major ones. The fourth one is plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. So seabirds, you know, mistake floating pieces of plastic in the ocean for food and they eat it or they bring it back to the nest and feed it to their chicks. And that has devastating effects. That's a lot. That's a lot to dwell on. I know. Uh, hold on. I gotta ask. You said it'll take them a few years to reach the age of nesting. So they're flying around the albatrosses and then they'll return to the same island to nest that they hatched from, right? That's right. Is it possible they could just return after three or four years and it's not even there anymore? There could be a lot less of it or it could have changed significantly. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these birds, they nest on different 
sort of types of islands with different landscapes and topography, but a lot of them do nest on really low-lying islands that are really impacted by storms. You mentioned that they bring plastic bags back to yeah. the chip. Have you seen this? Yeah, I have seen it at Midway Atoll. It's, you know, that there's nearly a million albatross that nest there. And so all of those parents are searching the North Pacific, which has the huge North Pacific garbage patch from the big gyre that sort of accumulates floating debris, plastics. And so those birds are, are encountering absolutely tons of plastic. And the plastic also washes up on the shores at Midway. It's really sad to see the amount of plastic that's on the shores there. But they feed it to their chicks. And then essentially the chicks will die because there's no nutritional value and their stomachs get full of plastic and then they starve. And so if you're walking around the colony there, you see the remains of chicks that have, you know, they're dead and they've mostly decayed and all that's left behind is a pile of multicolored plastic. There's nothing that will ever get that image out of my mind. It's it's burned in my mind forever. It's uh it's awful. Sarah Thanks for sharing that image with us because it takes many things to go right for someone to be able to go to that place where you were to see that. In fact, I think you are the only person I know that has been able to go there. And it brings it back to my own experience. I feel disconnected from seabirds and they are fairly inaccessible to the average person and birder, not even to the average, to the majority of people. And when you mention climate change, when you mention plastic, when you mention bycatch, this all comes to my purchasing decisions that affect climate change and how much fuel I use to the type of seafood I buy that could be getting these birds killed, but also to the pop bottle that I might have not recycled properly. And it makes me think, how can we get more people to pay attention to the conservation challenges of seabirds? Oh, that's a really big question. I think, you know, public outreach is really important. There's always a need for more of that, you know, because the majority of these birds really do live their lives out of sight. I think popular media outlets like documentaries and, and podcasts like this one are a really important start. I think one thing that, that anyone can do, you know, I think we need large scale change and that needs to come from the top down. So really the biggest impact you can have for seabirds collectively is to make it known to our governments that action on climate change and plastic pollution and sustainable fisheries are all priority issues to the public. So, you know, you can write letters to your local politicians, you can make a difference with your vote. But in terms of trying to get the word out, for me personally, you know, I try to do as much public outreach as I can, but also I'm, you know, I'm really passionate about teaching the next generation of, of ornithologists, trying to instill some passion in the next generation. But in terms of reaching the general public, just trying to find opportunities to share experiences, I think. So to summarize, people can demand and take action to address climate change. They can adjust their plastic and seafood consumption so that it's less harmful for seabirds. And people can write to their politicians so that seabirds and wildlife in general are included in policies. So now that we know the threats seabirds face and what we can do to help them, can you tell us where we can see them in Canada? Let's start with the West Coast. Ooh, well, it kind of depends where you are on the West Coast. That's a tough question. I mean, it, it depends what you have access to. If you can do a pelagic tour, which is an offshore boat tour, that's where you're really going to have the best luck, you know, seeing hopefully sheer waters and storm petrels and some of the puffin species that are out there. That would be my big suggestion. I would say the best thing to do is to go with somebody who knows their birds and they can point out what you're seeing because it really is, it's very regional 
original as to as to what you might see. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask East Coast now, though. Do you have a favorite out on the East Coast that you might want to go see? If you're doing a holiday. I know you live out there, but if you're doing a holiday and you're like, I got to go see a specific bird, which one would it be? Oh, you know, probably the Atlantic Puffin. I think yeah? That's, yeah. They're so charismatic. You've got to. Atlantic Puffins and and Northern Gannets, I think, are two. That's the big and the little, our, our big and our littlest guys. And they're both really fun to watch and see. I don't so. know much about the Northern Gannets. Could you tell us a bit more about them? Northern Gannets are huge. They are the biggest seabird in the North Atlantic. Um, very long wingspan. And they're plunge divers. So they're the ones that sort of hover up high, you know, 30 feet above the water surface. And when they see a fish that they want to target, they fold up their wings and they dive head first um, at incredible speeds. With a, and they hit the water with incredible force. And uh, you can see that from shore in, you know, most places in Nova Scotia, for example, you just train your binoculars on the horizon and you'll probably see groups of gannets diving. So that's a really good one to watch for. So these are like boobies. Exactly. They are boobies. Same family. I love boobies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Are there any shorebirds or seabirds? I, I'm always on piping plovers in my head. Are there any seabirds that people could see when they're not on the coast or out, out in the water? Are there gull species? that people could look for. I'm just thinking of our, our more um, central Canada listeners, if there's anything they could think about. I have to admit that for me, every Great Lake counts like an ocean. They're super mega huge and they remind me so much of the ocean. So would any of those birds count? Well, again, it depends how you define it. So... A herring gull might be considered a seabird, depending on who's defining it. And you can certainly find a herring gull in the Great Lakes. As a species, they're a seabird, but, you know, maybe those particular birds might spend the majority or all of their lives in freshwater. But other birds of that same species, you know, probably spend their whole lives in the marine environment. So, mm -hmm. and terns, I think, are a really good oh, one for lakes. Terns so terns, awesome. we, we often think of terns as seabirds, don't we? And, and But they can also be a freshwater specialist, although they'll migrate, certainly, to marine environment. So yeah, turns, I would say, are a good Turns are a really for. good one. Yeah, mm. they're a really good one. And super close to us. And you could see them in so many different habitats and even marshes and wetlands like Caspian turns and common turns. Exactly. Yeah. And they're spectacular. But what about scoters? Scoters. So scoters breed on freshwater lakes and then they overwinter in the marine environment. Would so they'll be, they'll be migrating to the sea. Well, they're waterfowl that use the marine environment. I love how vague the definition Definitions are like when we start to really get into it, it's like, do we even really know? <laughs> it leaves no question to me why so many of these species are in data deficient status. There's a lot of reasons for that. With seabirds, the first thing you have to do, whatever you're doing, is define exactly what you're categorizing as a seabird. And often we have sort of subcategories of different types of seabirds. Um, and so it just depends on how you're defining it. But if you're defining it as any bird that uses the marine environment, not including, you know, away from the intertidal area, then there's a lot of species that fall into that category and they do all face the same sort of suite of threats and so treating them as a group makes a lot of sense. And how can people connect with birds that they might never see? There's different ways. I think, I mean, for me, I personally, I 
before I ever met an albatross, I connected with them by reading a book that was really formative for me called The Eye of the Albatross by Carl Safina. In that book, he follows the life of one particular albatross and sort of tells the story of albatrosses and of seabirds through the lens of this one individual bird. And it's beautifully written and it's a call to action for, you know, all the threats that seabirds and albatross face. And and that book was really influential for me. So I think there's lots of ways to connect with these birds. I think books are a really good way. And there's so many great books out there that celebrate seabirds and tell their stories. I'd be happy to provide a suggested reading list if you're interested in that. You but should provide I- a suggested <laughs> reading list to go with this episode. I reckon people would love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to, to form a connection. Do you remember your first albatross? Oh, yes, absolutely. We'll be right back. The Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. To learn more or to make a donation, visit birdscanada.org. And if you give, please note the podcast in the comment box. And I remember the sound, you know, I couldn't see anything, but I could hear, you know, a million albatross clacking and calling and just the general chaos in the darkness. And then, you know, we're walking to our little used golf courts to get around on this island. And we're walking to our golf cart off the plane and Albatross just walks in front of us. And they said Albatross just slap, slap, slap with their big feet on the pavement. And that moment, you know, was just, I couldn't believe it. They have the most amazing personality and uh, it shows in everything that they do. Sarah, you might be the only way, and I hope it's not, the only way for me to visit these places. And this pops one question in my mind, which is how has visiting these amazing and remote parts of the world changed your perspective? It does. It it instills a sense of duty in me to share what I've witnessed and to sort of bring that perspective to my research as well. So I try and do that, you know, through public outreach, different audiences, and trying to ensure that my research has management and conservation applications and through teaching and motivating the next generation of ornithologists. It really, it does permeate through everything that I do. I really like that. It sounds like you've had a lot of adventures and really interesting field experiences just through seabirds. That's really special. How can average person in Canada help seabirds? You know, at a personal level, there are simple things that we can all do that will help seabirds and all marine wildlife, like reduce our fuel consumption and avoid disposable plastics, choose your seafood carefully, and donate to organizations that are doing important work to study and conserve bird populations. Um, I'd say those are the things that the average person can do. But I think that, you know, that large scale change needs to come from the top down. So the biggest impact we can have is to make it known to our governments that action on climate change and plastic pollution and sustainable fisheries are priority issues for us. So you can make your biggest difference as an individual, I think, for all of these issues with with your vote. Awesome. So read some really good books, get inspired and uh, and get involved politically and, and just with your everyday choices. Absolutely. Perfect. It really inspires me that we can save birds that we might never, ever see. And it's equally worth it as any other bird we're in love with, even if we don't see them. That makes seabirds really, really special for me now. I'm so glad to hear that. The Warblers is produced by Andres Jimenez, Jody Allaire, Andrea Gress, Ruth, Friendship Keller, and Kate Dolbeach. 
This episode was edited and engineered by Katie Jack with the music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nichol. Until next time, keep burning. <laughs>